On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we're going to be talking about real estate because the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation has decided to say that Hamilton real estate is less risky today than it was before. Why is that? And is that a good decision? Well, we'll be explaining what it is and why that is the case. This week also is Holocaust Education Week. We're going to be chatting with the head of the Hamilton Jewish Federation about what do you do? How do you keep the story alive when the last remaining survivors of the Holocaust are now beginning to die and the first person accounts are beginning to become rarer and rarer? How do you keep it relevant? How do you keep it front and center? And of course, we'll be chatting about the most important issue of the day, namely, is it time for high school and elementary school pictures, portraits to just be done by yourself? Do a selfie rather than having a group come in or a company come in. Is it just time to let you do your own duck lips and be fine with it? Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Let me tell you what's going on. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has downgraded its risk assessment for Hamilton as a market. Now, we're going to explain in a couple of minutes, or at least my guest will explain what that all means and why this matters. What they are saying is, their explanation, and again, this may be... Um, real estate association people talk, the market is now more closely aligned with local economic fundamentals. Let me say that again. The market, our market, is now more closely aligned with local economic fundamentals, which is why it's less risky now in Hamilton, the real estate market. So what does it all mean? Well, it's a good question. And I'm going to bring in someone who... um, who can tell us all this stuff. His name is Rob Golfie. He is an agent. You see his signs all around town. He's also the co-host with Rick Zamprin Saturdays at 9 a.m. for the Hamilton and Niagara Real Estate Show here on 900 CHML. Rob, thanks for doing this today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. All right. So the market is now more closely aligned with local economic fundamentals. Can you explain that line in English? I, my, my, what I think is, they say in that because of all the things that are coming to Hamilton, uh, expansion of, uh, I think one of the, uh, you know, uh, DHL, uh, expanding in, uh, the airport, uh, the, uh, permits that, uh, and people are buying up downtown Hamilton to build condos, uh, the LRT, of course. So there's a lot of economic things that are happening in the next 10 to 15 years that it's going to make Hamilton uh, a boom town, uh, just like it was in the uh, you know early 1900s uh, when it was the uh, you know the age of, of when uh, companies were coming into Hamilton and the steel companies and and all these manufacturing companies. And it's just a different way, and uh, a lot of people, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the bankers and economics are saying. Saying, seeing that that there's a a, a long fork, big up upswing forecast in uh, in the economy here in Hamilton. So the idea that we will have more jobs, more people will be able to have work. So if you're going to buy real estate, that the risk level of you being out of work or not being able to pay is lower. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's going to be a lot of jobs coming into town. Uh, people are going to need to move in, and you know, and and the thing is, the jobs that are coming in. They're going to be long-lasting jobs, and and that just kind of evolves into other things that are going to be coming in. So the more people 
uh, working, more people moving in, and more people moving in. That means more money spent in, in the city, and more people are spending money in the city. That means other uh, businesses are going to open up, and it just keeps rolling, and, and it just gets bigger and bigger. So uh, to clarify then, because when I first heard this, my um, your initial reaction is, okay, less risky means prices are going down because there's less risk. I, I'm seeing two different things going on here. Less risky because we may have more jobs and less of a chance you're going to be out of work. But it seems that if we're going to have more people moving here, the demand for homes is going to go up. The supply may go up a little bit, but the prices are probably going to start going up again too. Prices will probably still go up and they have been going up for, you know, like since 2008, uh, sorry, 2009. And, uh, you know, at a, at a decent pace. I mean, in 2017, we had an economic uh, big upswing and it kind of uh, balanced out uh, throughout the year after. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think it's just uh, they feel that, uh, um, you know, based on housing prices and salaries and uh, you know, people's wages, it's, um, it's, it's not as a, as a risk as it, uh, maybe what, what they felt was before they felt that, uh, you know, Hamilton's going to be another, uh, you know, like a mini, uh, Toronto, like it's, uh, you know, like we're not as big as Toronto, but, uh, we have a lot of, uh, big things happening in the city and, uh, it's going to be good for everybody. But a, a less risk would send the message that you can buy here now, which should lead to more, even more of a surge in interest. I mean, we've had people from Toronto for a long time, but it, it should lead to more of a surge, right? Oh, it's going to, it's going to bring more investors into uh, Hamilton, uh, more people, you know, like, uh, again, millennials, you know, that have to travel, uh, that work in Toronto, they'll feel more comfortable in, in buying real estate in Hamilton. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, there, there is a, a certain uh, a small percentage of the population, you know, they look at Hamilton as a steel town, and, but they don't realize it, it, it's more, more health sciences. Like, I mean, mm. we're, we employ more people in health sciences than we do in steel. And they, you know, they drive over the Skyway Bridge and, you know, you know going to Niagara Falls and, you know, doing the weekend trips there and looking at Hamilton, and you still see some of the smokestacks you know, go in there and they're looking at it. Well, I don't know if I would want to live in Hamilton, but once you get into Hamilton, uh, people, like I'll tell you, that, you know, these GTA buyers coming to Hamilton, they love it. They wish they were here even earlier than, uh, you know, instead of waiting as long as they did. I don't know what I was listening to the other day or what I was watching, and I heard a commercial. You may have heard this one. It may have been your commercial. I don't know. Um, anyway, <laughs> it said it was for a new home construction, and it was for somewhere in the far reaches of Hamilton. I can't remember. One of the, like, far suburbs. And as I recall, it said this was these were homes that were now starting in the low 600s. And I'm thinking, man, if you're starting in the distant, distant parts of this city in the low 600s, that is not a market that looks like it's about to drop off the table anytime soon. No, and it and it, and it it's just going to continue. Um, it's just uh, the land the land is more valuable than ever before, and uh, it's just. You know what? More and more people are moving this way, and the demand is becoming stronger. So, so that it's just going to drive prices uh, stronger, more and more up, and the population is going to grow. It, everything, everything's just going to get better and bigger, bigger, bigger and better. So, if that's the case, and now we we go back to where we started with this this risk assessment thing, and we've got all these new jobs, and we've got people, and, and I'm guessing younger people who are getting their careers started or moving here from Toronto, younger people. Does that mean almost by definition or by default then that the future in Hamilton is got to be condos because there's just not the homes for people? Oh, absolutely. We want high density living, 
And if they can build as many condo buildings as much as possible, and that seems to be the generation that's that's coming up right now. They they want that. They they prefer lifestyle. They don't want to have uh, you know houses to maintain the lawn and you know shovel the driveway. They like to pull in and they they eat out a lot. They they're not eating. You know they they'll take out eat out. Um, they're not not cooks like probably our parents are, but. It's a totally different generation and and uh, supplying that demand for that generation. But does that not, again, mean that if you are looking to get into the condo market, that you better hurry because when this thing really starts to latch on, that those prices are going to go really crazy? Um, I, I, I'd say it's going to be balanced for a while. Um, I don't think it's going to you know jump in leaps and bounds, um, but I, th- I think we're good. But but it is good to get into the market because I mean if it goes up you know you know five percent a year I mean if you add up let's say if you buy a four hundred thousand dollar condo up five percent it's going to be worth twenty thousand dollars more or twenty five thousand dollars more next year following year another twenty five thousand adds up so it, it is good to get into the market and stop the uh, inflation so now the inflation is working on your benefit whether uh, instead of against you after that. This may be a silly question. Uh, it's been a while since I sold my home or bought a home, but with the housing climate as hot as it has been and can be, do we still have seasonal buying effect? Like it, we've always been told that in the spring and summer is the time to sell your house. That's when everyone wants to buy. Is that still the case or is it like right through the year now that you can sell or buy? You can sell right through the year. So as you get into like, into, right, we call that early spring. We find that there is a robust of buyers out there. There's a, there's a big the inventory's low, but there's a, an abundance of buyers, and a lot of houses are moving. So now that now that's dictating what the market's going to be for the year. Now, in Hamilton, from from uh, February March till October, the market has gone up five percent just in the in the eight nine month period. And, uh, and, and it'll start up again in, uh, in January and it'll be, you know, it'll be up from, you know, November, December, and it'll just continue to go up next year and towards the end of next year. Uh, so every month the market is moving up and, and the markets change every time. So whether it doesn't matter what month you're buying in, as soon as you buy, you're in, you're in the game, you are ma- making money, you're, you're building equity, um, and, um, you're, you're, and it's just going to start growing from there. But is there a better time? You know what? Uh, any time, every any time is a great time to buy. Once you buy, you're going to start making money. Again, I would think largely because of the fact that even though the uh, uh, CMHC also said that Toronto was less risky, which I find hard to believe. I find it hard to believe that anything in Toronto is less risky in real estate, honestly, for most people. Um, You still have a a migration coming this way who can't afford to buy Toronto, correct? That's right. That's right. So now we're we're the next step closer to Toronto. And as they get uh, the the rails going... uh, uh, with the uh, go train, it, it's just gonna. Mm. Every, everybody's just gonna start migrating along the Golden Horseshoe, and and uh, and then just take the take the train to Toronto, and and that'll just expand the whole, uh, you know, the Niagara uh, and the Hamilton uh, area. Rob Golfie, you can hear him 9 a.m. every Saturday morning here with Rick Zamper. Appreciate the time. Thanks as always. Thank you. Have a great day. You know. Again, I go back to the story. The reason I pull this story up, and I, I mean, we talk about real estate because people love talking about house prices, either because they own their place, 
and they love hearing that the value of the place is going up or because they don't own a place, they're not in the market and much like the weather, they are grumbling about it. Now, understandably so. I mean, if you are someone who is trying to get into the market, it is not an easy thing. But I find it fascinating that Hamilton is downgraded in the risk department. I get the point. But when you look at the prices, and as I say, I heard this commercial for a brand new starter home way out of the downtown for in the low 600s. I, I, maybe I misunderstand what risk is. There is risk. I mean, that's a lot of money. I don't care who, I mean, unless you're Bill Gates, that's a lot of money. The average person, oh yeah, I'm going to start in the 600s. That's a lot of money. There is risk there. But how we define risk, I guess, becomes a little bit different. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is Holocaust Education Week. Some of you may have known that, others perhaps not. It's worth remembering this year, obviously, and every year, and I'll tell you why. There's a new documentary that's out on Netflix. I think it just came out this week. I only saw it this week. Maybe it was longer than that, but I just came across it. It's called The Devil Next Door. I watched it in two days. It's a five-part documentary, an hour for each part. It's about John Demyanyuk, who was accused of being Ivan the Terrible, who was the man at Treblinka who were who was pushing Jews into the gas chambers and r- relishing watching them suffer. And this was a man who ended up living in Cleveland, who was then taken to Jerusalem for a war crimes trial, and it became a very complicated story. It's well worth watching the documentary. He uh, died ultimately before a decision could be made about his innocence or guilt, a final decision. And so he now in perpetuity lives in this, not really sure whether he was or was not Ivan the Terrible. People have their opinions. Anyway, in this five-part series, it is mentioned that the last surviving folks who were victims of the Holocaust, not victims, I mean, they didn't die, but the last surviving ones who went through the Holocaust are now dying. They're very elderly, many of them. And the last surviving perpetrators of the Holocaust are dying off, which leads to a very troubling, a very difficult question. What happens when they're gone? What happens to the history? What happens to the story? What happens to the lessons? What happens to the next generation or generations as far as still believing, still understanding what happened so this doesn't happen again. I want to bring in Gustavo Reinberg, who is the CEO of the Hamilton Jewish Federation, who joins us now. Gustavo, thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. This, um, this does have to be a concern for you, for other people who's, who are passionate about making sure people remember when, when all the firsthand accounts finally vanish, are, are people still going to believe what we know to be true? Well, it's a very, very good question. A very difficult answer, you know, and thank God, you know, the technology today is helping us a lot. You know, it's very easy to, to tape, to record, to, to editing the stories and to keep them in, in, in very easy to watch format. The, the other thing is, like, we, we try to do a lot of work with the second generation, okay? The second generation of survivors, they are the ones who experience living firsthand with survivors, and they are telling a lot of stories. Um, the problem is that their parents didn't share a lot of the stories until late, late age. So, Because why do you think? Well, for Trauma? different reasons. 
well, trauma and also embarrassing, you know, a lot of things. Don't forget that a lot of people did whatever they have to do in order to survive. And it's maybe it's not comfortable for them to share these experiences. And some people start to open a little bit with the grandkids and sharing the stories with them. Uh, and also, I think that the, the relationship between survivors and their kids is like they still like to protect them. And for a lot of people, you know, by don't telling what happened is kind of a protection. So it's different with the third generation. But it, it's a very difficult topic. We try to record as much as we can. We are trying to bring documentaries. There's a, thousands of new stories coming alive. And we like to, to share them with the community, to share as much as we can. Um, and I think that it's a, it's a responsibility of all of us and to, to share the stories, to tell the stories, to come and listen to survivors. Because when you listen to, to a survivor, you automatically become a witness. So, and I think that it's important to, to repeat what we saw. What we listen, Gustavo. Uh, do you have Do you have any idea in in your work in your time? Do you have any idea how many firsthand survivors that you've talked to about the the Holocaust, about what happened? How many I talked to? Yes. How many have you come across, but like that that were there? Oh, when I mean, uh, like for example, this uh, la- last Tuesday we have here at the uh, at the Jewish Federation like five survivors, five amazing women talking to a lot of people. We have another survivor today. But, I mean, in my life, you know, I was exposed to to a lot of survivors. I don't know, I would say, like, maybe 50, 100 survivors, you know, because my work and studying and visiting different organizations. But there are not so many alive. You're right. Um, it's going to be very difficult to, to, to continue telling the story. But if, if we share what we saw or what we listened... That will be very, very important. And the reason I the reason I asked you how many you've spoken to personally is because I really believe I, I've I've talked I think I've talked to two in my life, two people oh, who were there. No, no. But mm. but when you talk to someone who was actually there, it, no matter how well their children can express the story, it is vastly different than hearing Absolutely. it from somebody who was actually there. You're hundred percent right. It's very very different, and that the emotions that they come with it's 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 it's. It, it, Unique, and I think that it's an experience that everyone should have and take an opportunity advantage now because, as you say, there's not so many. So I, I say to my kids, I say to everyone who I know, you know, now is the time. Make an effort to listen to one of them, to read about them, because it's going to be our responsibility to share these stories. What, what you mentioned uh, a moment ago that you, you know, there, it's possible to tape them, to record them. Are, are we doing a lot of that before they're gone to try and get their words and their stories recorded? We are. We are, and there's a lot of them recorded in an old format. And what we, we will do is we, we try to digitalize everything, and we like to make it more user-friendly, more like um, you know, the formats that we need today. And yeah, we're doing a lot of that. And every time that we have an event with the survivor, we tape it, we record it, we photograph, we we try to do as much as you can to keep good archives. You were talking about how many of these people have not really told, many of the survivors have not really told their stories all that often. Do you think the ones that are still with us now... um, maybe understand a little better that regardless of whether it's embarrassing or whether it's uncomfortable that they that they really need to 
to keep the, before they are gone. Do you, do, is that a is that a common thing that you're hearing? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that they are more willing to to share the stories, to to write about the stories, and they are finding the way to 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 share in the way that they feel comfortable. You know, but I think that they they realize that they know that they are the last ones. How often do you hear? Even now, and again, you've talked to, you say, maybe a hundred people who are survivors. How often, even now, do you hear somebody tell a story? And well, part of it, when they're telling it, part of it, you go, that's, uh, that's unbelievable. I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that that was reality. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a lot about that. So every time I read a book about the, the, the testimony, it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm having that, that reaction, you know, how they did it. And but the question that I have more often is like, how they did it after, you know, they survived the Holocaust, but the lot, all of them, they have a new life. They, they, they somehow success in life. They have new families. They, they reinvent themselves. That's always a question that they have, how they did it. Um, I, I, I listen to survivors very often. I try to watch a lot of documentaries. Here in Hamilton, we, we are bringing survivors different times during the year. Holocaust Education Week, Yom um, HaShoah, it's in April, and also in January when we commemorate the liberation of Auschwitz. Uh, and this year is going to be 75 years, uh, we bring survivors because I think that it's, it's, it's a very, very meaningful, very powerful thing to do. And also we are having a big uh, seminar for students in high school where we're always bringing a, a survivor to talk to them. That's happening in April. Last year we have approximately 800 kids coming to listen to survivors. And uh, it's a very powerful experience for mm. the kids. And, and for me, what, what I see after every testimony, the reaction of the, the, the students is unbelievable. How many questions, how many interesting questions and powerful questions. So I always say, you know what, at the end, I always think that there is hope. It's interesting, you, it's interesting you mentioned that because the grandson of Rudolf Hess was in Toronto this week. Yes. Uh, yes. I, we tried to get him on the show today. We're going to have him on the show soon. He's told us that he'll do a, a time with us. He'll find some time with us down the road, which I'm looking forward to, to hear his story. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, reading the reports of his speaking to a bunch of high schools is exactly what you just talked about. Different scenario. He wasn't a survivor. His grandfather was a, was yeah. a, a horrible, horrible, evil man. Mm-hmm. But the students were stunned by this. I guess on the one hand, that's a positive because the kids can still be stunned by mm-hmm. horrible things. The other hand, though, I thought, does this mean that they hadn't heard this before? And is that not a little troubling? I think that one thing is, is like studying Holocaust at school. And the other thing is have a personal experience or a personal contact with the Holocaust survivors. They are very, very different things. And I also think that Holocaust doesn't have to be or anti-Semitism doesn't have to be a topic that is happening only at school. It's something that, as parents, we have the responsibility to talk about these kind of things at home, you know, to share with the kids. Uh, so you can, you can read a book, you can read a testimony about the Holocaust, you can watch a documentary. When we are face-to-face with a survivor, your perspective changes. And the impact is very, very 
very powerful. And one of the things that obviously that this is this week is for that all the things you do is for that uh, so many other groups do is to, as we said, keep this fresh, keep this in front of people so that these kind of things, we, you know, you don't want history to repeat itself. And it's not, I mean, the Holocaust is obviously the biggest one, but there have been other genocides that have happened around the world. We don't want those to be repeated. This is those lessons that you learn. But how then, we all have a minute or so left here, how do you keep it relevant? Because again, if the people who were there are now dying off. We don't, many of us don't have contact with people who were in the Cambodian Holocaust or the Rwandan genocide. How do you keep these things relevant? By doing what I'm doing, you know, but bringing them, sharing information with the community, inviting the community, going to the schools, telling the stories, and also involving, as I said at the beginning, the second generation. Because when you involve the second generation and sometimes the third generation of survivors, you, you can see that their life was, were also impacted by the Holocaust. Okay, they, they were not witnesses, they were not there, but the, the Holocaust impacted their life. So, and they have other, uh, other stories to share, and we have to bring speakers that they are talking about that kind of experiences as well. So that, that's what we can do, and I think that it's important to remind, her, to, to remind everyone that the Holocaust did happen. If somebody and the Holocaust started with words. Yeah, yeah. No, if somebody is interested, we only have a few seconds. But if somebody is interested in, uh, how long is your week going on for? Are there still events going on after tonight? For sure, we have like a the, the final event is this upcoming Sunday, Sunday November 10 at 2 p.m. at the Westdale Theater. We are presenting a new documentary, Canadian premiere of the movie Warsaw, A City Divided. Okay, and, and, and that, that will culminate the week of Holocaust education. And your website for people who want to find the information is? Yeah, jewishhamilton.org. Jewishhamilton.org. Uh, Gustavo Reinberg, CEO of Hamilton Jewish Federation, thanks as always for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in a guy that um, we're, we're a fan of on this show. A, because he's a good radio guy. B, because he has his own show that he does called What Were You Thinking? Or What Were You Thinking? Or What Were You Thinking? We'll let him decide where the inflection goes. And C, because he's the executive producer on the show. So contractually, I'm to have him on here a few times a year. That's not really true, but I just like having him on. Jamie West, how are you, sir? I think I'm okay, Scott. How are you this evening? I'm doing wonderfully, thank you. I um, I have guests. I have a show. I'm dry. I'm warm. What 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 is there? What's there to complain about? Oh my goodness! <laughs> my arm. But, you know, if you want me to start doing that, I'm I'm happy to do it. It reminds me of that Monty Python skit. Is this right? Uh, is this right room for a complaint? No, it's, it's, it's an argument. Argument. That's right. <laughs> I love that one. Okay, well, let me. I want to talk to you about something that people do complain about a lot, and I okay. I think that it's out of line mostly, and that is last night. Did your phone go crazy last night with another Amber Alert? Oh yeah, I was bolted out of bed with the bam bam bam. Yep. So here's my. I got a couple of questions about the Amber Alert thing, and I am I am sure. by the way strongly in favor of the Amber Alert system. I think it's a necessary thing. I think it's a fantastic thing that we're doing this to try and find kids that are missing or whatever else. First of all, though, is it me or do these Amber Alerts only ever go off now in the middle of the night? 
<laughs> that's Seriously. Exactly, that's exactly what I thought uh, last night. <laughs> I thought every single one of these has happened in the middle of the night, and I don't know whether that has to do with when they decide that they're going to sound the alarm or whether that's just the reality of how these incidents roll out and and uh, these child abductions uh, happen under cover of darkness. I, I don't know, but it's certainly noticeable that it seems to be always in the middle of the night. Very the, weird. The problem with it, and again, I don't want people to misunderstand, I'm in favor of this. The problem is, though, for 99.9% of the people who are tucked into their bed, they're not going to be doing anything to help the search for these missing kids when it goes off at that time of night. And I, I mean, I guess that's just a reality of how, you know, we have to deal with it. But it, it, I, I can't believe that these things only ever happen at midnight. It's, um, it is definitely hard to believe. And, and yes, you're right. I think a lot of people, um, you know, they're stumbling to consciousness. They fumble onto the bedside table for their phone that's lit up and buzzing and banging away and and uh if they're like me they don't even have a pair of glasses on that they can actually read the thing so they just treat it like an alarm clock and smash it and wait for it to end and that's and that's it and and that that's unfortunate but you got to know by the numbers somebody is going to see it and that's what that's why it's there it's there so that as many people as possible can see it and perhaps make a difference my concern with it is that in time when these things are always going off in the middle of the night with that tone, which I still think that if anything could be changed, it's the tone that could be made a little bit different. So it's not quite so jarring. Nonetheless, small quibbles. I just worry that in time, many people are just going to tune these things out because they only seem to happen in the middle of the night and they don't seem to be anything that anyone can do about it, or at least for most people. And, and that would be a problem if you suddenly have this great system that people just tune out. Well, I think you're right. I think, but I think that goes on anyway. I mean, you're taking the, you're just extending people's complete disengagement with each other as human beings and as neighbors and as community members, and and putting it into the elect, electronic form. I'm I'm not sure that that people. I, I I'm not sure that people don't. Uh, get those alarms and those notifications and, and just say, yeah, it's not my problem. Um, what do I care? I won't even read it. It disturbed my sleep. Forget it. Not the right attitude, obviously, but I, but I think that a lot of people probably, probably have that attitude. Here's the other part about this, and I didn't know about this. This is my shame for not knowing this, but came across this story today, and it, uh, let me see. It's not even a new story. Well, it's a week old. Uh, I just came across it today, but there has been a push on apparently to create a silver alert system. So we have the Amber alert for kids. They're trying people across the world. The, uh, the Alzheimer's association of uh, Alzheimer's society of Canada has been trying to create a silver alert system for adults with dementia or Alzheimer's who have wandered away. And apparently, and apparently have received basically no interest across the country for this, which seems to me to be, you know, if we're going to argue that we got to be able to find kids that are being taken by their parents, which we should, it seems kind of then, what's the word I'm looking for? Unsympathetic to turn around and say, yeah, but if it's an old person, who cares? Well, they have a, yeah, I I hear what you're saying, but, you know, they have 
they have people, I guess, or, or you know, they have police officers and people that can, can do that. I know the argument's going to be, well, who do you think's looking for these abducted kids? The difference is we don't know that a crime has been committed. Child abduction is a crime. It's, it's, a, it's a crime under the criminal code of Canada. Um, and possibly worse. Yeah, possibly worse. Yeah. I mean, you could end up right. with a horrible thing. Right. So we don't know that a, a senior citizen is suffering from dementia. It's a terrible thing for families when a, when a senior citizen does wander off. Terrible thing for them. But it's not the same thing. And, it's, and it doesn't warrant a silver uh, alert system. No way. You don't think so? You don't no, think? Because no, I think, I, as I don't want, I, don't, I, I mean, again, not to be sounding like I'm down on the Amber Alert, I'm not, but I don't want the same alarm going off every time. But if you just had a diddle-diddling and a picture pops up with the person, and only in your area, right? Because if it's a wandering as opposed to someone being abducted, presumably they're going to be close to home. But if someone in Hamilton has wandered off and it's a little ring and a picture of that person, I don't mind that. Well, I, you know what? I think the thing, if, if you want to if you want to flash a a picture up with a notification and have it be silent, that's fine. So my my thing would be uh, have at it. Whatever groups want to, uh, you know, put a put a photo up or a silent notification that comes up on my main screen, that's fine. But I don't want to hear any alarms unless a crime, an actual crime, has been committed, and and that's what we're talking about with uh, with amber amber alerts. I don't want I don't want that part to get watered down any more than we've already discussed, and uh, I don't want it compared to anything else. It's a crime, and it's a different uh, animal altogether. All right, let me change note for a second here, because you are a father of school-age children. You've got a couple daughters who are, I can't remember what grade they're in, but both still in school. And this is a story that came out of England that has created complete blowback so when your kids go for their, their day at school, their their picture day at school, and you send them from home and presumably, hopefully, you've got their hair brushed and you've got them in a proper outfit, whether it's a uniform or just something other than their usual, you know, thrasher t-shirt um, or whatever they wear. Anyway, I don't think you, I don't think your daughters wear hard, heavy metal t-shirts, do they? Uh, <laughs> uh, my, daughters, my daughters wear ho- hoodies that... No, not heavy metal, but um, <laughs> no, Panic at the Disco, maybe. All right. Not metal, you know, so, lighter stuff. So you send your kids to school, you get them looking as nice as they possibly can. Hopefully the picture gets taken early in the day before they get to be a complete mess again. Anyway, <laughs> this, uh, actually this is from Arizona where this happened. It was, the story was published in England, but it's from Arizona. The company in Arizona that was doing the pictures, when they sent home the stuff that you want to fill out for what what package would you like to buy, they offer for a little extra premium, premium retouching, which whitens the teeth and evens the skin tone, or other retouching, which removes blemishes, and a few other things. So you can touch up the pictures of your kids from elementary school to make them look a little more model-like. And people are losing their minds over this. Should they be? (laughs) No. I mean... Come on. I mean, what? This is a, I'm laughing because this is a world these days that's built on the facade. It's, it's, we, are, we are the phoniest society these days when it comes to imagery and, and what we post on social media uh, to present the best image 
of ourselves. Why would why would why would that why would anybody be outraged about that? If if you if if you're that insecure and you want to have touch ups done, have at it. Well, because it, it's suggesting that somehow if your kid doesn't have the perfect skin and the perfect teeth, that they're not quite good enough. Well, and that's an ongoing that's an ongoing problem. I, I don't find it outrageous, but it's a it's that's an ongoing problem in general. Um, everybody's trying to portray themselves as somebody that they're not most of the time. When it comes to creating images, photographs or images. Uh, those photographs could be then, you know, posted to various social media sites. So those teeth better be white, and you know, you're, it better not be a, a zit on your forehead, or you know, the whole world might judge you for that. Well, I okay, okay. On that point, I would have thought that any compassionate photo company that's taking your school pictures, if you're a kid who shows up on that particular day with a giant knob of a zit on your forehead, they'd be, yeah, like ki- I did. <laughs> well, they'd be kind enough to look after that for you on the Photoshop anyway. You wouldn't have to pay a premium so that, you know, Jamie or Scott doesn't have their grad picture for all eternity with a flaming lantern on their forehead. I know, but we live in a, we live in a world of upselling. I mean, uh, well, every- that's true. Everything costs money. I'm surprised they don't have an option to, like, put duck lips on you or something. (laughs) That would be good. That would be excellent. What I really don't understand, truthfully, and you just raised the point, I hadn't considered this until you started saying about all, you know, our selfies and social media and everything. Why do we even take school pictures anymore? Why not just tell the kids, you know what, take a good selfie that you like and send it in and we'll use that in the yearbook? That's a great idea, actually. Um... I don't know. I guess there's still people around that are traditionalists uh, who who want that school photo image thing. I, I'm with you all the way. I mean, look at the latest uh, cell phones that are out. Some of them have three cameras on them. They're, you know, I wonder how anybody in the photography business can make a living anymore um, as a as a professional photographer. I know there's more to it than just snapping a photo, but. It's got to be hurting them. It's got to be cutting into things when you can get this kind of resolution. And, yeah, and then you can create all your your effects and everything on these photographs. Yeah, I don't know. I can tell you that my kids, to my great uh, dismay, stumbled upon my grade 13 yearbook and found my grad picture and immediately proclaimed that I was Napoleon Dynamite. And they weren't, and they're not all that far off, sadly. Uh, and the worst part is, I was not even remotely the worst photo of the grad class in the yearbook, which is the issue here. Why not just let people take their own picture that they would be happy with? Because somebody is ending up with the one where they're right about to sneeze, or their hair is standing up, or whatever else. And that's what you're gonna—that's the picture that's going to be up on the wall of the school with your grad class forever, forever. Yeah, yeah it's time to take that trauma. Out of the <laughs> of young people. It is right. a trauma. It is a trauma. It yeah. absolutely is because someone, you know, you're the kid who, you know, look, even the people, and I got to be kind of nice-ish, um, they're, not everybody is attractive. 
Well, I mean, let's just be right up front with that. Not everybody is attractive, picture-wise. I mean, they can all be beautiful inside, but not everybody is a beautiful model. But you know what? If you can go home and take your selfie and work it and take a few pictures and spend half an hour coming up, eventually you're going to come up with a picture where you look decent. I agree with you. Um, I think the selfie route is the is the way to go. Um, let's let's get real. Let's get into 2019 and and uh, let's end the school photo thing and everybody just send in your best made up image of yourself and off you go. What what did Jamie West's grad picture look like? Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh, oh boy, I can. It's funny. I can see it. It's plain as day in my mind. Um, I had the nice mullet going. Excellent. Uh, cat, you know, at the back, cascading over my shoulders, I had a, <laughs> a, a, a yellow gold stud earring in one ear. Wow. I had a clip-on tie, <laughs> and uh, my nose was about four times too big for my face, and I had a nice selection of uh, zits across the top of my forehead. So I, I was a real matinee idol in my grad photo. You paint the, quite a picture. Yeah, my yearbook stays firmly planted in the bottom of a box in the <laughs> deepest corner of my basement somewhere, and it never sees the light of day. That, you know, one of these days you're going to have to, you know, we should do that with everybody at CHM. You know who I'd like to see? I'd like to see Ted Michaels' grade 13 <laughs> picture. <laughs> he probably looks like Eugene Levy in, uh, as Bobby Bittman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah, no, he would be, um, you know, I, do you know anybody alive? Do you, I mean, that's not true. There's always two or three who were gorgeous in high school, were the perfect specimen. But other than those two or three, do you know anyone alive who looks back at their their grad picture and goes, man, I was good looking back then? No, not one. And, and uh, you know, on that, that point you just raised, I have to say this. I was joking with somebody the other day. There were... Girls that I asked out in high school that I thought were just models, just beautiful women. And, of course, none of them would go out with me. Um, so I was, you know, shot down in flames. And I've seen pictures of some of them recently, and they are they are, have really gone to pot. And may I just say... You mean it currently, or those pictures you look back on and went, oh, not so good? No, no, the pictures I look back on were great. It's just the, the current pictures that are out on various platforms don't are not very complimentary of the way they are now and i sit there and say man you turned me down and look how great i am after all these years and then i look in the mirror and say to myself buddy you're no better than anybody else you are a complete mess facebook has done tremendous things as far as allowing you to connect with people from your past that we never would have been able to connect with again. But the flip side of that, or want to. well, or, but the flip side of that is then we can, as you just said, we can see what people look like now and they can see what we look like. And all of our memories from high school just get shattered when you see the people, who, as you say, that they look like in 2019. It's like, really? Really? Oh, yeah, no, you, what, so you just don't want to see sometimes. Sometimes you just want to leave it the way it was uh, in your in your mind or what's left of your mind by this stage of the game. That's why there were so many great high school movies 
in the 70s and 80s and even even into the 90s because you still had the imagination of what high school was like. Now we've obliterated that. Well, we have. And that's, again, a, a byproduct of being able to bring our past fast forward right into our present. And I think the past should usually stay right where it was in the past. I uh, I definitely, definitely want to see your grad picture now. You've you've enticed you've enticed me with this picture because it, it really sounds like Jamie West had his pick of the litter. It's based on that picture. Oh, yeah. And when I say of the litter, I literally mean no. I'm anyway. <laughs> I, I I think if you and I had been hanging out in school together, we may have been able to run the table like Tom Hanks and uh, who was it? Tom Hanks and John Lovitz in that Saturday Night Live skit where they couldn't get any woman to talk to them. Hello and goodbye. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been you and I standing there just being passed by everybody. It was. It, it would have been for sure, my friend. Guaranteed. Anyway. Anyway, well, see, good then that we have a future to look forward to when, well, I don't know how if it's, I don't know if it's going to get any better for us, but nonetheless, hey, at least we've solved the problems of high school yearbook photos and elementary school yearbook photos. Just take your own. We don't even need, I'm sorry if you're an, I don't think we have any advertisers who take yearbook pictures, so I think we're safe, but just, we don't need them. Just take your own selfie, send it into the office and away we go. Jamie West, always appreciate you joining us. Thanks for doing this. Scott, always a pleasure. Have a good night. Thanks. You as well. I, look, I think that's I think that's a legitimate solution. Take your own selfie. You can take as long as you want. You'll get a picture that you like, presumably then, for the high school yearbook. You won't have one that you look back on in absolute horror years later. Well, you might, but at least that's your own fault at that point. We're on to something here. Think of the money you could save. Every phone, every phone now that you would take the selfie with, you have an editing feature. So if you've got a giant zit right between your eyes, you can, you can like hit the button a few times and get rid of that one. You could do all kinds of stuff to make yourself look good. And anyone who's saying, well, no, we need reality. Come on. Since when have we ever tried to have reality in our high school yearbook pictures? You're supposedly supposed to put something in there that makes you look good. People try. Well, here, here's your real opportunity to, to do it for real. I would like one principle, one, any principal who's listening, one principle, that is your assignment for next year. A high school yearbook in which the photos can be self-taken and self-selected. See how that one goes. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.